listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. For all the problems we face in the Western world, one thing does feel like a constant, democracy. We'll always get a say in who is elected to govern us. But there are threats, and among them, billionaires who want a market-driven system. Today, we're discussing a new book called Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy by Quinn Slobodian, who explores the idea and the danger it presents. Hi, Keith. Uh, Let's start with this idea put forward by Slobodian about market-driven systems. What does that mean in plain English? I think what what they've got in mind is that the government should get out of the way and let business run the country. Government does have a purpose in supporting whatever big business needs to enable big business to run the country. So he's not saying we've got to get rid of business entirely, but he wants to reinvent business. And there is this problem identified by the most laissez-faire of economists, Milton Friedman, who once lamented that political democracy has elements which tend to destroy economic freedom. So economic freedom is the basic driving force of history, according to these people, rather than democracy. So democracy, demosocracy, rule by the people. It's actually had a a pretty checkered career. We talk about countries being great democracies, but in fact, they've only been democracies for a few centuries at most. Mm. The Greek experiment with democracy lasted only a few hundred years. So it's not been a constant feature in, say, English way of life or the American way of life. So it's always constantly under threat. And the argument now is that really we should organise everything around profits for companies and individuals and the wealthy. That point of view has some fairly deep roots. So the idea is that, although not all of these people mentioned in the article would subscribe to this, but you would argue in favour of an inheritance tax of 100%. Okay. Right? So you couldn't leave money to your children mm-hmm. right, when you die. So everybody starts off from ground zero and make their own way in the world. And they do it and they then get rewarded if they do well. If they do badly and they squander what little opportunity they have, well, too bad. It's not the job of the state to help lame dogs over styles. Mm-hmm. So it is a reinvention of government with a focus on making money, rewarding the hardworking. It's a meritocracy rather than a democracy. The phrase was invented by Lord Young. As he liked to remind people, he invented the phrase meritocracy as a joke, mm-hmm. right? It, it was a, a satire that he wrote. But instead, I run across people who use the phrase now as, as a, a legitimate political <laughs> science phrase, a bit like democracy and, and yeah. whatever. So Lord Young, in writing about the meritocracy, was looking at a time when people were ba- well, just based on their own skills, really. They, they got ahead. The problem that he warned about, and he was so spot on, he wrote the book half a century ago, he said the problem with having people who think that they are rewarded with wealth for being special and hardworking means that they become 
so focused on themselves, they're not willing to help others. Mm. And so you end up, as we've seen, with this growth of new right economic rationalism, the patron saint of whom is Milton Friedman, this idea that, well, I've worked hard, I'm a millionaire, why should I help these unmarried mothers who Mm. get themselves pregnant Mm. and then become a burden on the taxpayers? We should only reward through finance the people who have done extremely well. In a sense, they're actually divorcing the notion of democracy from their considerations and they're focusing simply on wealth, which you can much more easily measure. Because you've got a continuing debate as to what constitutes democracy. As I've said, the the phrase means rule by the people, but in what ways are ruled by the people? Because you've got different types of democracy. For example, you've got a representative democracy, which is what we have. You elect people to parliament who will then represent you. The alternative, which is what they pioneered in Greece, was direct democracy, whereby a group of individuals, men, property-owning, free males, would get together to make the decision, and that was direct democracy. What they decided would apply to the government Mm -hmm. in Athens. So even when you're talking about democracy, you've got more than one variety. So you sidestep all of that debate over democracy, what is true democracy, et cetera, I just focus on saying we will help people get rich mm-hmm. and we will reward the successful for doing well. And so in this article, he looks at how you've got a variety of characters. You've got the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, who is very much from 1979 concerned with introducing the ideas of new right economic rationalism just to reorganise British industry, which had become so complacent, so much for an old boys club. So she, in her own right, was actually quite a radical person. Whether or not you agree with her is another matter, but, you know, she took the view that we shouldn't continue with coal mining. It's a dead industry. And she herself, by the way, saw herself as the green goddess of number 10. (laughs) So she wasn't anti-environment or anything like that. Her reasoning was simply that coal has come to an end. Coal mine unions are far too powerful anyway in British society. Therefore, we reduce the significance of the coal industry and reduce the significance of the unions. We reward people for working hard. We lower the maximum tax rate. You know, the people were paying exorbitant sums of money if they were high earners in those days. So you used to get a large number of British entertainers who actually lived out of the country because they said they couldn't afford to live in the country. Mm. So you've got Margaret Thatcher on this list. You've also got the Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel, who invented PayPal, Mark Andreessen, who's also another IT person. So these are different individuals. And yet what unites them is this belief that the focus should be on the making of money rather than just giving political democracy. What they're saying is democracy should not be the highest value in its own right. Making money should be the highest value. This might sound like a very simple question, but if we didn't have democracy in the sense that we do now, who would make the rules? Who would be in charge? An oligarch. Right. Who would that be, though? Well, be, The richest person the richest would win? People. Yeah, exactly. The richest people, the big company owners mm. or whatever, they would be the Mark Zuckerberg or whoever. They would run the country. That sounds awful. That's because you've grown up in a, in a culture of democracy. So you, and you like expect, it? No, no, I'm not <laughs> endorsing it. But I'm just simply saying that you've grown up with one perspective mm. and 
what this article is doing by this historian at Wesley College in uh, the United States is actually just forcing us to think, well, there may be other ways of organising society. He's not necessarily supporting it, mm. in fairness to Slobodian, but it, he is just simply saying we've got to recognise that there are these individuals who, for example, lionise Lee Kuan Yew, the leader of Singapore. Yeah. I, I come across this all the time. I was one of those who remember the old Singapore. Mm. My first trip to Singapore was back in 1973 when the Royal Navy had pulled out the place was falling apart. It had been expelled from Malaysia. The name of Malaysia is part, contained Singapore inside it. Mm. And the Malays and the Singaporeans just didn't get along. So got expelled from that federation. And Singapore was in a very bad state. Now, what happened there is, is that Lee Kuan Yew just ran a very authoritarian society. It calls itself a democracy, but it's not. Mm. When... Nelson Mandela, who was the world's longest-serving political prisoner, was released in 1990. The one that was on in Singapore had by then become the world's longest-serving political prisoner. He was leader of the opposition. Wow. So, yes, they do have an opposition, but the leader's in jail mm-hmm. in Singapore. <laughs> so a very authoritarian society. And this is what appeals to the Lee Kuan Yew fan club, is that he is somebody who reinvented society and one has to give him credit for that. He was able to turn that little city-state around. They've achieved magnificent economic growth. They have a per capita income now, which is higher than that of Great Britain, the former colonial power, or even the United States. Mm. It's clean. It's efficient. It's just not a democracy, that's all. Mm. And, and Singapore shows that you can exist without having to worry about these things called you know, elections and, and whatever. But what about the people who aren't happy with the system, they're kind of downtrodden a bit, aren't they? And of they're Yeah, so how could that be a, a good society if there are people who, and I know that exists now with democracy, yeah. but at least there are people in most countries, in Australia, for example, we acknowledge that there's a homelessness issue and that there's an issue with low incomes and the cost of living. This model that we're discussing would be, well, who cares about those people, Right. There'd be no support for them. Oh, no, there, there is good welfare. You don't see homeless people very much in Singapore. Mm-mm. They're living in back room accommodation, but at least they have a roof over their head. So is that the idea then with this? Because what would happen to those people if we're in a situation where all that mattered was money? And if you don't make money, then you can't get ahead, like full stop. There's no... Well, then you, the incentive on you is to be able to make money. It changes your mindset in the same way that you're horrified the idea of living in a society which is not a democracy. Mm. You could also be brought up to believe that your main aim in life is to make money rather than having a say in how your country is governed. Mm. I still don't like it. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and this week we're discussing whether democracy is a threat thanks to the interests of a few billionaires. Now, Keith, that was going to be my next question. This all just comes down to profits for a few very rich people. Is that right? That'll be it. But, of course, they would argue that they then spend the money and the money then circulates in society. It's not a, a, a viewpoint that I would like, but I can see some of the logic behind it because they would point out to, well, say, Lee Kuan Yew, mm. okay, authoritarian elections are a waste of time, 
But we, we've got a generation of young Australians coming through now who are just saying, well, elections are a waste of time. A lot of them don't bother to get registered in the first place because then you appear on the government radar screen. So there are people who are losing faith in democracy anyway. So they would say, well, I'd be happy to have a benevolent dictator. <laughs> it's such an interesting concept. I wanted to know, because I haven't heard of this kind of idea before specifically, is this something that's popular among the world's richest people or is it more of a fringe kind of way of thinking where, hey, this should be what we look at doing? Well, it's more than just a fringe because of the people who are behind it. You know, someone like Margaret Thatcher, she certainly wasn't fringe and she still casts a very long shadow over British politics, even though the, the woman's been dead now for some years. But she certainly casts a long shadow. And it tapped into the spirit of the time. You know, I grew up in that post-war Britain. And I saw how Britain, which at one point had a very vibrant economy, was just running out of steam. Mm. There had to be a circuit breaker. There had to be a way of changing how the country was organised. And so she focused on the making of money. Deng Xiaoping in China. Remember, to be rich is glorious. Mm -hmm. So you had Deng Xiaoping with his own economic reforms about the same time as Mrs Thatcher and again focusing on wealth. This goes back, I think, to a writer called Petty. So this is an economist writing around the time of Adam Smith. So Adam Smith comes along, 1776, Wealth of Nations, talks about how we have an industrial revolution, in effect, an industrial revolution and people instead of working just on a seasonal or occasional basis, will now have to turn up Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday at set hours to work in a factory. People said, oh, that's not going to happen. Petty said, you're not going to be able to get people to turn up to work that way. They'll make enough money by Wednesday and figure, well, I'm going to take the rest of the week off. So you then had to invent consumerism to be this carrot which is permanently dangled in front of it, the worker. Mm -hmm. And so the worker continues to keep working beyond that Wednesday because there are always more and more things to buy. Now, there weren't too many things to buy back in 1776, <laughs> but now, of course, you've got such a variety of, of toys that you can buy. And so this is how consumerism drives the economy. So you've really got two ways of running an economy. One is to have it done through government investment, we see that in China, where they're building railways everywhere, roads to nowhere, bridges, etc. And that gives the impression that the country is incredibly modernised, which it is, but some of those railways and, and bridges are unnecessary, at mm. least at this current stage. So that's investment-driven economic growth. The alternative one, which is what the Americans went for and which the British and others have also followed through on, is a consumer-driven economy. Mm -hmm. where you, you ask the ordinary mums and dads go out and spend money and keep the economic activity pushing over. And at that point, you're then focusing on individuals and wealth, which for China is quite alien. If you go back to the time when the British tried to engage with imperial China, this is Lord MacArthur's expedition just around the time of the Industrial Revolution. Britain was saying, look, we are now the factory of the world. We're manufacturing all these goods. You've got a lot of tea in this country, which we like. <laughs> Can we supply you with manufactured goods in exchange for the tea? And the Chinese weren't interested. They weren't interested in that foreign muck because at that time, a Chinese middle-class person was someone who wrote poetry, 
did paintings, etc. They were not driven by consumer ideology. Mm. And they weren't really driven by consumer ideology until really 1979 and Deng Xiaoping, three years after the death of Chairman Mao. And then, of course, China is now very much consumer-driven to such an extent that they don't want to have children. It's much easier to buy a new car than to get a child. Mm -hmm. So we see this incredible culture change within China when you've now got more people interested to be consumers and working hard. So you do get these major changes that take place, but consumerism is the major factor driving the economy. And so you, you get these multi-billionaires who are just exploiting people's interest in consumerism and being able to say, well, let's uh, look at what we can do to help people with their own consumerism. And some of them will end up as rich. The nature of authority structure in every society is that it has to keep on renewing itself because people keep on dying. Mm-hmm. So you always got to be recruiting new people. So you get the youngsters coming through. Mark Zuckerberg was a youngster at one point. He's now middle-aged. But you recruit these people into the system and they help continue to drive the pace of change. And so you would then create, if these so-called thought leaders get their way, you'd create a society which doesn't depend on elections doesn't value democracy very much, but instead just focusing on helping people to make money. And the role of government is to help people become rich. Mm. A big part of, uh, you mentioned Singapore, Uh, this book also talks about Dubai, and a big factor of these working successfully is control of citizens. How do they get that control? Partly by having them uninterested in what's going on in wider society, Mm. and also the better payment for police services. One of the first things that Mrs. Thatcher did when she came to power was to improve the pay rates for the police. She knew that she was going to have to use the police a great deal to maintain order while she put through these changes, such as the coal mine tragedies that we've seen and a number of movies were made about what life was like in the north of England Mm. during that period of turmoil. But she realised the importance of keeping the police on your side Mm, Okay. Well, it's an interesting idea to me, you know. I I see you're still not convinced. I'm not convinced. I just think a society should work for everyone involved. And part of that is a democracy where people can have their say in in who makes the rules for them and who's in charge. But I'm always open to your fabulous (laughs) uh, articles and books. And this is just another new thing I've got to learn about. So thank you. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic.